Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I'm joined today and every Tuesday and Friday by Daniel Foch, but we've got two other guests today, one which needs no introduction and who, if you are listening to the show, have probably been waiting for this one to come out. It is Chip Wilson. And the other is an individual who goes by the name of David Ferguson, who is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Low Tide Properties. If you're looking to do business with Low Tide, this comes from their website. There's a good chance David Ferguson, co-founder and chief executive officer, is going to invite you to his favorite meeting room, the Grouse Grind. I think this is kind of funny because (laughs) seeing these two individuals bonding over healthy, active lifestyle, and and it really shows, and I'm going to go on to read a little bit more from their website, but it really shows in the way that they think about real estate, the way that they execute real estate. And the heading of this uh, behind low tide section on their website says developing buildings, neighborhood, and people. And they're very much a tenant-focused group, and they really think about it, and it really shows you, you know, how chips ability to spot trends, but also to focus on improving the lives of individuals, especially focused on our generation, on people who are 30 to 40 years old, which is a lot of our listeners and how they actually intend to do that through, you know, obviously uh, the the entrepreneurial ventures that we know Chip Wilson is involved in, but they want to do the same thing through through their real estate portfolio. So if you haven't already realized Chip Wilson, the billionaire founder of Lululemon, that's mostly what he's known for, revolutionizing pants. Uh, and thank you to him because I own several pairs of the ABCs. Um, but he also is very, very passionate about real estate. And it's fascinating because his if you trace it all the way back to kind of his first business venture, it actually was being a small-time landlord in Calgary where he bought his first home for $50,000 at a 19% interest rate. And all of these years later, through all of his different business ventures, he's come back to what initially got him started, which was real estate. We have an amazing conversation at his office in Gastown, overlooking the oceans and the mountain. And it was amazing to hear how passionate both him and David are about Vancouver, about Canada, and about real estate. So we hope you enjoy this very anticipated episode as much as we did. Uh, if we sound nervous in the first couple of minutes, it's because we were, <laughs> but we but we did settle in and I can comfortably say that, that both Chip and David were so welcoming, charismatic, had smiles on their face the whole time. And it was a really wonderful experience for us. And I hope it was a pretty good experience for them too, because this is the first time, and I believe the first podcast that they've ever done specifically where they talk about Real estate. Chip has obviously done other podcasts and speaking arrangements where he talks about his journey with Lululemon and all of his other business ventures. And he's got an incredible life story, but real estate never came up. So I am very happy to say that the following and it, and it was interview, it was especially excited, exciting for me because you know it wasn't like it's not like oh it's a family office and they're allocating a portion of their income to real estate. Like he's very excited and passionate about real estate. They're not trying to do like. 
it's not just a an investment for them. Like this low tide property is very much an active business that he, you know, any any really channels his vision for helping improve the world, help help people live healthy active lifestyles and obviously him and David really connect over that. Uh, and you hear that throughout the throughout the interview. Um, and it, it's just really cool to examine their perspective towards changes that are coming towards how we can have an impactful um you know, uh, role as landlords in tenant quality of life, in productivity, in, you know, in the relationship business of real estate. And so really, really, really exciting interview. And you said, you know, if we sounded nervous at the beginning, absolutely <laughs> we were. If we sounded very inspired at the end, we absolutely we, were. We it was were really, well. really, really cool discussion. Yeah. So without further ado, please enjoy the first time that Chip Wilson goes fully in depth about real estate in this interview. So I was working for this catering company uh, as like a 22 year old, maybe something like that. And I got this really good, it was this random experience, the catering, the, like the manager was like, hey, we have this, we have this catering thing. Uh, no one say anything. It's a high profile person. I'm like, okay, whatever, what does that mean? Whatever. Um, later on that night, I ended up at like Iron Man's house and uh, got to see the Red Hot Chili Peppers play <laughs> as I bartended Big Nasty and all of the hockey players and everything about 15 feet away. So this is full circle for me um, 10 years later. So thanks yeah. for the private Red Hot Chili Peppers show. Yeah, that, that was, was unbelievable. That <laughs> Just um, went to see them last week again. No way. PC Place, it wasn't the same. I can imagine. <laughs> to share the experience with a few more people there. Yeah, yeah. so. Um, that was, that's a uh, very full circle for me to kind of be there 10 years ago and, you know, look up to you back then and now to be here, now the opportunity to sit with you and interview you guys and, you know, learn from you still is, uh, it's pretty damn cool. Um, and so from a context perspective, I think it's nice that you brought up the, the house because, you know, we are the Canadian real estate investor podcast and probably what's almost become Canada's national sport is getting leverage and figuring out a way to purchase the most expensive primary residence that you possibly can. That's probably, you know, it's tax advantage, but it's also the, I think what most people in Canada consider real estate investing. We call that more of a speculative thing or, you know, maybe making it a, a savings vehicle, but by uh, most um, measures, you would be, the, I think, considered the most successful person in that space in, in Canada, having, you know, the, uh, exceptionally valuable primary residence. So congratulations on that. And and, 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 and I think the, the That's worked for me and against me. Yeah, <laughs> and I think, um, you know, beyond that, we, we want to chat a lot about real estate investing uh, outside of the primary residence with you. And it's not something that I don't think you're exceptionally well known for. Um, so I think to start off, what we wanted to chat with, and Nick kind of framed this in a very interesting way, so maybe I'll just let you ask the question. Yeah, so I mean, I'd say most people probably know you for revolutionizing pants, mm -hmm. which is awesome. I have many ABCs myself, so appreciate that. Pleasure. Uh, Anti-ball <laughs> crusher. That's what it is, <laughs> yes, just to clarify. Um, but you've done so much more, so I think that the, the first question we'd like to ask is, at this point in your life, after all the accomplishments and what you're doing now, what would you say you do for a living? Um... Well, I love that line, you know, when you find something you love, you never work another day in your life. So I've never, I can't say I've worked a day in my life since I was 32 and probably sold my first company, West Beach Snowboard, which seems to be something that we're all connected with too. Mm -hmm. um, what do I do for a living? I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an idea creator. 
um, I find that my mind is always going into the where the future is going. I'm extrapolating from the past. I'm, I'm reading or listening to two books a week and lots of podcasts. I, I'm an information gatherer. And uh, so what I do for a living is I amalgamate and extrapolate. And I think I, you know, have a, and I'm a, my mind's full of big data. And I take that and I, and I relay it to the people I work with. Sounds kind of familiar. That's kind of what kind of what we do, but much smaller scale, obviously. But uh, so so on that note, I mean, one of the things that we try and instill with our audience, it, our goal here is really to train sort of the next generation of real estate investors. And I think my my view is Canada has a pretty unhealthy relationship with real estate. You know, the primary residence piece that I mentioned earlier is is a big factor in that. Um, and I guess the question that I have is, as an individual who you know, brings ideas to life, and, and especially from an entrepreneurial background, what's the best thing that you know an individual can do if they're in the business of real estate or in any business, like a young entrepreneur? Um, what's maybe the primary piece of advice or the best thing that in one single thing that a, a young entrepreneur could do, with you know, if it's an expenditure of their time or energy? Well, so much of that question is based on what worked for me. I mean, it could work differently for different people. Um, I would say start young and start early. Um, in other words, um, you know, I I went to Alaska to work on the oil pipeline for two years, and I did that in isolation and traded my life in for money, and I came back and was able to buy a house with three suites in it. I knew nothing about, you know, real estate. I knew that I had played Monopoly all my life, <laughs> and I had that. But I had no, um, uh, you know, I had no ability to understand how to ask people for help. So I was kind of self-driven to make mistakes and to learn. But um, because I've done that in almost all my businesses, I've learned deeply, and I understand things deeply because I've made such vast mistakes. Um, at that time, it was I, I bought in the middle of the. It was nineteen percent interest rates, and I bought a house for I don't know fifty thousand dollars in Calgary, put ten thousand dollars down, and I had, and I was paying nineteen percent on that forty percent, and yet I had two hundred thousand dollars in the bank collecting four percent interest. I had no idea how to pay my mortgage off. So these are things that that I learned. So start early and um, and don't be afraid to make mistakes, but along the way if you're smart enough to ask other people for help I suggest you do it yeah I think that's that's great advice and something that uh, we seem to continue to do was just learning lessons the hard way you've stayed in Canada for I mean you're still here can you guys both maybe tell us why you love Canada outside of obviously the amazing view we've got in front of us here why the why stay in Canada? Why the investment in Canada? Why the investment back into Vancouver, specifically from a real estate standpoint? Especially, you know, we all know that Vancouver and Toronto are both outrageously expensive in comparison to the rest of Canada. What's the drive to stay here and reinvest in, you know, your local economy? Let's go, Dave. Um, well, I guess answering the first question, what do I love about uh, Canada? And that is that it has, I'd say, uh, all of the good things of the U.S. and very few of the bad things. Like there's lots of opportunity. It's a lot 
there's a lot more general business opportunity. I think also, though, that we have, we pay higher taxes, but we have a social safety net so everyone gets taken care of. We, uh, we don't have the extreme wealth. We also don't have the extreme poverty. And I think it's, it's a society where welcome, we're opening, and I think people get along incredibly well. I mean, all you have to do is look at what's going on in the U.S. now, and you can see the chaos. I think in terms of Vancouver, both Chip and I love Vancouver. I'm from here. He's lived most of his adult life here, or actually almost all of his adult life. Um, and we recognize what an amazing city it is. I think the other thing that's quite unique about it is the limitation on land, because you just look out there, there's a bunch of mountains. You look that way, there's an ocean. You look that way, there's another country. You look that way, and there's a big river, and there's a whole bunch of land that you can't develop because it's a primate agricultural land. It's protected by something called the Agricultural Land Reserve. So, so I think our view is an amazing place to live. We have forty to 50,000 international immigrants every year that move here and a very limited land supply that says it's probably a pretty good place to invest in real estate so yeah for Canada for me it's um, I'm you know Canadian father who went to school in the US and uh, I was born there and moved back to Canada when I was five so I've got uh, relatives on both you know both sides but as I've looked over life, I've recognized that Canada has something very special, and I would say we're right in between um, the British understatement and the American overmarketing. So we have we have a, and I like that position. I because I I'm, I hate the American kind of over bragging type of thing and the over marketing, and yet I think you know the British are a little bit too subtle. So I, I like I like who we are as a culture. Um, and then from the the Vancouver point of view, it's it, the it, the interesting thing is being the newest city in the world, basically is how I would look at it. And when city planning really came to be, Vancouver was a desolate wasteland in the most beautiful place in the world. And to be able to develop a city from scratch with a hell of a city planner with a long-term vision with the city council that was behind a vision like that um, I mean it was a it was a playground and uh, the, the ease of transportation the beauty the ability to be athletic in this city and to be healthy to live a long life is second to none in the world love that yeah I, I don't think I could agree more um, let's just dive right into the real estate stuff so why real estate and why now? Well, I'll, I'll say mine and then you can say sure. yours because my, mine started. I, I mean, it's as simple as being a young boy and spending 12 hours a, a weekend playing Monopoly. I just loved the game and I played and I played and I played. We, we'd play and we'd have to make our own money, you know, except, you know, because we just would run out of money, to, so to speak. So, you mean like actually making yeah, more yeah, money? Yeah, <laughs> more money. In I order think to that's play. illegal. <laughs> the federal government in Canada does it every day. Yes. <laughs> so, um, I think that was part of it. And I, so when I came back from Alaska and I had this money and I'd, you know, saved it up it was you know I understood a little bit about you know rent and buying a house and I think it was ingrained in me from playing the game and then it's really seeing the relative ease of uh, what it was to be a landlord not it's not easy but 
you know, it, it, you know, you have a house, you rent it out, and you take care of the house, and it's it was it was nice to have. I like relationships with people, and I like architecture, and I like. Um, um, I, I guess I just like the, the the game of fixing something up, making it more valuable, and getting more rent out of it, and everyone's happy. Yeah, love it. So like value add investing, it's fascinating yeah. that going all the way back, you know, starting with Monopoly. And then again, everyone knows you for the clothing and, and everything. But you know, your first actual investment, your first business, maybe was that first rental in in Calgary. Right. And now, you know, all these years later, you're developing major properties across the Lower Mainland. So let's talk about that. Let's talk a bit about what Low Tide is doing right now. Great name, by the way. Um, I understand you guys are big in the life sciences, so. Let's talk about what you guys have going on now, and then maybe walk us through the next what the next couple of years look like for for Low Tide. Um, well, I guess uh, Low Tide we operate in five neighborhoods, all in the city of Vancouver. There uh, ones we I guess specifically viewed as having emer- either emerging or we thought would change in the near term, so that we would be able to both influence or in some cases actually be the catalyst for the change in the neighborhood and so we buy multiple properties in each neighborhood and then we depend we improve them they might be a relatively small improvement or it might be kind of a wholesale change to affect to i guess to help catalyze the improvement in the neighborhood Um, and so in Vancouver, our portfolio is predominantly, I would say, office or creative office. In a, in a lot of cases, they were in former in industrial areas and maybe former industrial buildings, but they were of a nature that we could renovate and that would appeal to other, I'd say, non-traditional industrial users. Like maybe it's a, I don't know, a wholesale, I don't know. Um, Grocer or something. Yeah, yeah some, something like that. Or or a creative office tenant. Maybe it's an architect. Maybe it's somebody, some people that are designing some in the tech space. Um, so that's an awful lot what we do. More recently, we have uh, started focusing on an area that we call South Flats. It's along Great Northern Way. Um, and uh, I guess it's... Uh, all of the businesses we're targeting are in, I would say, sort of a creative slash research uh, realm, and they might be they might be software, they might be gaming, they might be life sciences, but it's basically a new neighborhood we're going to create from scratch. I'd say there's two things, and following up on what David said is um, right from uh, the start of Lululemon. Uh, it was a declaration that we were going that our muse the, the target market we were going after was a 32 year old single professional that owned their own condo traveled was stylish and very healthy driven stop it i'm right here yeah you're right there well most that's right and that's exactly who who we're targeting so rather than um you know at lululemon i really figured out how to go direct to the consumer like i was only concerned with the consumer i wasn't concerned about you know, people that stores that would buy, I skipped the whole wholesale business. So when we think about real estate, or as I think about it anyway, I think about not who the, um, who the tenant is going to be and the 50 year old or the, 
45-year-old that's that's making the lease or representing the you know the large tech company or something. I'm thinking more about where does that 32-year-old want to work? Where do they want to live? How do they how do they move through their day? What kind of restaurants? What kind of transportation? Everything from that point of view, so that we make it so that the the it's so appealing to the masses of the um, uh, employees for a company that then the employer wants to come to us and wants to work with us. Is that a trend that, you know, I know in, in the editing of your book, I think in, you had revisited the thought around how apparel trends were going to change due to work from home and um, people not, you know, needing to be dressed up to go to the workplace and putting more thought into how that was, you know, a, 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 probably a, a big change, like a, a complete, you know, top title shift in before before there's a line drawn before and after have a lot of the assumptions that you're making around real estate changed as a result of the you know the pandemic period like one of the big questions and the big question mark in the real estate space right now is what does the central business district look like for the next decade or two decades and you know a lot of those assumptions have been completely uprooted especially in in you know your kind of class b office space in places like toronto or some of the more traditional financial cores um, have you made massive changes to your acquisition strategy, to your you know your assumptions for tailoring um, space for the you know for the ultimate uh, employee rather than the tenant as a result of sort of things that have happened in the past two years, namely the global pandemic, or was that a trend? Because I know you are well known for kind of anticipating trends relatively early. Is that something that you 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 believed in and anticipated much earlier? I think Dave, you should go after that and I'll follow up. Yeah, well, I guess firstly, we don't invest in downtown. So the, all of the neighborhoods we invest in are close into the core, but not specifically in the core. Um, and an awful lot of the buildings we have are catering to smaller and local businesses. So I think that's, uh, and I think most of them, from what we can see, the the workers are ha, have been throughout most of the pandemic and continue to work from the office and i think that's i'm assuming when we talk to people that's what they think works best for them from all, both the employer's perspective and the employee's perspective and i guess um one of the things just a couple of things i'd say is at the end of the day human beings are we're social creatures that's why we go to shopping centers that's why we go to movie theaters that's why we go to restaurants because it's a lot easier just to sit at home and do something on your phone and uh, do all those things and so and then also from um, I'd say a, an employer's perspective the whole sort of culture the development of people um, the collaboration and um, and I think a lot of the tenants we that our space is catering to the kind of tenants where all those things are important and so i think what we're seeing generally is they are continuing to use their office um, notwithstanding that some of them uh, have maybe are a little more flexible in terms of the work from home uh, balance they have i mean I think this is a little bit like 2008, you know, there's a big crash, there's a crisis, things move one way really, really fast and then they move the other way. I think what's happening right now is the tech companies way overhired during the COVID and now they recognize that their business model that they had and the number of people using tech during COVID is, was a lot more than what it is now and, and so there's been a correction, so they're real. I mean, even if we look at Seattle, which it's half our real estate business, it's uh, 
um, you know, they've laid off masses of people, but actually the employment is up 4%. You know, all those banks and, um, and other businesses that couldn't attract anybody because the tech companies were eating them all up are now available, and, uh, and I think things have, 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 have leveled out nicely. I think you're going to see a lot, a lot of the smaller companies now able to get real estate, um, and they're going to be able to move in. And I think it's it's the come the, the the general industry and business is going to revive. There's a, a resource called cheap rent right now, and it allows people to to change their business model and move into that and do something with it. Do you, do you see sort of the same thing happening on, like, are you seeing discounting on the assets or I guess since you're more ground up and there's development associated with it, like, is there is there a bit of an uh, inefficiency in pricing or, or discounting in that asset class as a result of, you know, rents being down, but also, like, are you able to, to invest at better prices than you would have when, you know, before this whole thing happened? Uh, well, I'd say um, the one thing I have observed, having been in the real estate industry for 41 years now, is that prices adjust very quickly on the way up and very slowly on the way down. And so sellers typically want last year's price and buyers want next year's price. So until there's, I'd say, significant probably pain on the part or motivation on the part of sellers um, there, there won't be a lot of discounting and there won't be a lot of trades. But I think with each trade, with let's say a motivated seller, that starts moving the, the pricing down. And I think with interest rates having gone up, uh, an economic slowdown, uh, returns, returns on real estate will go up and therefore prices are going to come down. And that's what we're anticipating and that's what we're, I guess, we're sort of carefully monitoring and sitting on the sidelines. Yeah, love that. I mean... I, th- I want to touch on something you said, which is kind of the consumer sentiment that we've seen the major shift, right? Some people are still living in last year and some people are fast forwarded to two years from now being like, where are the deals at? Um, what are some of the major lessons that you two gentlemen have, have learned in the last year, maybe be, having gone through a few of these cycles before, right? Maybe the, the late 80s, the cycle in the 90s, 2008, et cetera. What were the major lessons that you've taken away, specifically from the last year where we've seen a ton of volatility? A lot of our listeners are the people that you've mentioned, Chip, or, you know, the, the 30-year-olds, I'd say that's probably our exact listener, you know, down to early 20s and up to mid-40s kind of thing, that haven't necessarily been through one of these cycles that we're seeing right now, and the sentiment is maybe lagging or misunderstood. So. Is there any major takeaways from the last year with the volatility we've seen in the market that you can shed some insight on? Well, I'd say things are never as good. When they're good, they're never as good as people think they are. And when they're as bad, when they're bad, they're never as bad as people think they are. And I think, I, to me, it's looking at fundamentals. And we're a long-term real estate investor. We have a hundred-year investment horizon, so that's that. that's different than an awful lot of people. But really looking at, okay, is it well-located real estate? Is it functional in its current form? Is it something that tenants are going to want to lease? And so what we believe is if we buy, if we invest in that kind of real estate, we operate it to, with a very long-term perspective, we provide a high level of service to the tenants that over the long run will do reasonably well. Yeah, we're probably quite different than most real estate companies. We're, we, we, are, we have a massive development 
pipeline through the flats, probably one one kilometer, maybe a little bit more of about eight pieces of land. Nine. Nine mm-hmm. pieces of land and, um, you know, to redevelop a whole area and to really think like 100 years down the road, especially from a technology point of view. But, you know, we're, we're, um, we're a multi-generational family and we think seven generations down. So, um, you know, to young people, this is just a, uh, one of the downturns Good. And, and inside of downturns, there's opportunities. And uh, you have to have enough cash on the sideline in order to... Um, you know, take advantage of that. We do have that cash. That's what we have. We're very cash-rich, you know, business, and um, and we don't we don't deploy it unless we have someone who's phenomenal, like Dave Ferguson, who I may say is the best in the business, and I couldn't be more proud to you know to have him as a partner, who uh, understands this business and knows when the right time to buy in the right place. I I just want to comment on the hundred year strategy I love that um, you know we're, we're part of we call it team never sell right so we, we do a lot of real estate investing as well um, all in Ontario all multifamily and we think the same thing right like minimum this is a 25 year hold maybe maybe not a hundred for us but because I don't think some of the properties mm-hmm. that we buy might last a hundred <laughs> years um, until we get in and repair them but I just I, I it's not even a question I just really wanted to focus on that because so many people over the last you know, two years especially have just gotten into the speculation mindset where I can go in and flip a house and, and make $100,000. I can go in and rent stuff and raise the rents or build something out and, and look for that quick return. And, you know, to look 100 years out, you know, that, that just, I, I just loved looking at real estate in that kind of long-term strategy. On that note, um, I, I wanted to kind of like think, you know, Contextually, from a, from a long-term perspective, I think the speculation thing really came from us being in a declining interest rate environment basically since, <laughs> well, I guess for 40 years, right? Like, sort of that last peak, like you said, when you bought your first property with an 18% interest rate, was we've kind of been on a downtrend with some ebbs and flows since then. And I think, you know, that now, we, now we're seeing from a magnitude perspective, the first time we've seen interest rates increase to that scale on a, you know, like a multiple basis, obviously not nearly that... Uh, Nineteen uh, percent. That yeah, was, <laughs> exactly. but we did see a tripling yeah, of, of sure. the overnight or six x in the yeah. overnight rate, and and I think I, I guess one of the big questions because Nick recently informed me that you and I have this the uh, same favorite book, and and so I, I'm curious as to how much you know you think about concepts like these cycles that you know, and I guess those would be almost more socioeconomic cycles or social cycles that happen. How much those kind of things factor into investment decisions? And if you think we are entering potentially like sort of a new era, era, or would you where, call it the f- turning by yeah, any mean, chance? Yeah, but Before turning maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. You, acknowledging that that's sort of where where we're at, you know, that and I think the new, the updated version of the fourth turning is coming out. Like, and we are kind of anticipating yeah. getting into a new cycle of of you know the handoff from one, gen, I guess, the baby boomer generation to the next generation. Um, are there major like shifts that happen in the real estate economy and the general economy that you see happening as a result of some of those things? Yeah, I mean, I really believe uh, the fourth turning was really an interesting thing to me. I think Ray Dalio, you know, is another like yeah. proponent of that. Where you, you know, there's five or six um, indicators that you might look at that through history would say there's a major you know, there's a major shift coming. 
Um, so one of those, of course, is the government's printing untold amounts of money. And the second thing is a, you know, a polarization of politics and possible revolution like you might have seen in the White House when Trump left, so to speak. So these are all there and they're indicators. I believe that what's uh, happened that that takes away from that and the reason that interest rates have dropped and almost negligible through the last 20 years is that technology has commoditized everything. And uh, in the middle of COVID, looking at how much government's printed money, I was going, I would have agreed with you 100% that we're in a lot of trouble and that something is going to happen here. However, uh, and I, in the last four months, I believe this chat GPT is a technology that is as big as the internet and is going to change us fundamentally and again, bring prices down and commoditize uh, products to another level lower and consequently I have a belief that the interest rates even with incompetent governments that keep printing money interest rates are going to drop because of that and uh, and so um, yes you know there there's there's a change but I, I think it's been delayed again there's, it's interesting that you mentioned like the commoditization of products as a result of technology. Like we know that innovation is or should ultimately be deflationary on the cost of goods, but it also allows us to produce obscene amounts of things. I and mean, you're obviously an individual who's focused on quality in, in a lot of the practices that you've you know done in, in business in the past. Do you see this almost resulting in further excess consumerism and, and waste among, you know, like, the, the type of products that we're consuming, the disposable culture of things and the disposable nature of things. And then I know that, you know, eventually there's environmental consequences to that. Like these are all things that are, are very high level, but when we're thinking on a hundred year horizon, things that might actually impact real estate decisions, you know, things like uh, climate migration, like there's uh, concepts about, or, or the increase of, of um, productivity of Canadian farmland and the desertification of certain areas in Africa or the United States even expansion of deserts like are these things you know sea levels rising as an example are these things that you're considering when you think about that hundred year investment horizon well I'd say being in uh, Vancouver and Seattle right now that at least what I consider is uh, again I think the whole world is moving to the northwest probably to the northeast the further I think Canada is in a very good spot because of all of this However, I, I'm, uh, I'm much different than most people. I, I think just the advent of the World Wide Web back, you know, whenever it happened in the 80s or maybe 70s is uh, the transfer of information being as great as it is. I think our propensity to innovate and um, out of any of our climate issues is it, much faster than the climate is changing as fast as the climate is changing. I see a world where we have dikes around all land and, and they're actually the single greatest parks that the world knows about. Um, I see the desertification of the middle of the world as being an opportunity for solar that will actually make the center of the world the most the, where the cheapest energy is and where industry will go to in the future and then consequently cities and then desalification etc so can be so inexpensive that the places that are the worst are actually going to be the best 
I think actually if you looked far in the future, you'd probably find that Sub-Saharan Africa and probably the Middle East, which are places that you may want to live, may be the, the number one places to go. Interesting. Yeah, really interesting. I'm going to jump back to chat GPT. Okay. Uh, obviously, very hot topic right now, and I know that there's uh, the coalition of, of some very important wealthy people out there that are actually trying to put a stop to, to the AI developments that we've seen. How would you advise young people um, to protect themselves against losing their jobs for or to uh, an AI like like a chat GPT or something else well I think a lot about it because I have kids and you know I'm trying to like going into university especially one that's going into law and and besides executive assistant law is the number two thing that they think is going to be affected by it I think the world will continue to move to um, who can who can be the most creative in the working chat or AI as a tool. So in other words, I think some people are creative and some people aren't. And yes, you can ask, uh, you know, ChatGBT, well, what question should I ask? And we'll come up with a question to give. But even inside of that, I find at least my use of it, the the more creative the question I can ask with the most details gives me the best answer. And I think that our educational system will move more towards, you know, how to use a tool just like you would, you know, a, a jigsaw. It's, I don't think it'll be any different. These are just tools in life. And those that can take it on and use it will rise in life and the others will get Darwined out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love. It. I, I just a quick piece on that. I because I've been following this a lot too, and I've never been like a coding guy. But I've I've always been. I'm a simple guy at the end of the day. So what I've always what I've always thought my saving grace, and, and maybe for gentlemen such as yourselves and, and other people, is soft skills. I think are now going to be more important than than ever before. Mm -hmm. Right, the human connection. Right, you just said you love meeting people and building relationships. We look at real estate as a very relationship driven business, whether it's professional professional or landlord or tenant or whatever. So I just a comment there, I think that, you know, as we see AI become more and more prevalent in society, I think the actual human humanity of, you know, human connection is probably gonna be what saves certain people. So work on yourself. Well, I, I think you should let Dave talk about that. I think he's the king of it and has believed in it and has been probably the foundation of his success. Sorry, what? Well, you know, you build, like how you build relationships with, with um, uh, brokers, for instance. Yeah, well, okay, I wasn't thinking so much that when you were talking. What I was thinking is, like, to me, one of the greatest skills or one of the most difficult st skills to master is effective communication. It's taking what's in my head and getting it in someone else's head so they understand exactly what I'm thinking. And that is, I find, incredibly challenging. Like, I know I work really hard at it, and I have for 40 years, and I've got, let's say, reasonably good. But something like that, I don't know. Um, that's a learned skill, I think. Um, it, that's where, kind of to Chip's point, where people will get more creative and they'll learn to let's say use the technology we have which started with the internet then it went to google having a search engine and basically having the you know all the information in the world at your fingertips and now it's to artificial intelligence and i think people have adapted and they figured out how to use it but i think 
getting, being able to communicate effectively, develop relationships with people is incredibly important and that'll be a key to success in an awful lot of businesses. And is it, is it, like one of the things that we try to instill in our, our listeners in the, the, the a key to being successful as a real estate investor <laughs> is that tenants are in many cases one of the primary assets and to think about it as being in the business of real estate, you have to <coughs> create those relationships, imagine them as a customer that you're serving and the, the product that you're giving them is space as an example. Are you re- like, is there a way to differentiate or establish a competitive advantage in the space by cr- being a relationship first developer or, or landlord? And, and is there any advice that you can give? You know, imagining that probably most of our listeners are sort of your entry level investor or mid cap investors. So they'd be representing, I would say, in most cases, residential tenants and sort of small multiplexes. Um, any advice that you can give sort of from your practical experience of, of what you're describing to, to people like that? Well, I can speak mostly to more to commercial properties and let's say institutional properties, but I think it probably the same thing would apply to individuals. And that is that your tenant is your customer. It's your only customer. So you need to treat them really well. And if you think about it, it's a fantastic business. You have a customer that's going to pay a fixed amount of money every single month for your product for subscription. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, Potentially for years and years and years. And really they, what they want is the, all they really want is the product to work. So I think it's a fantastic business. Yeah. I mean, as being a, a tenant, you know, with Lululemon and of course, you know, one of my things was we started buying our head offices, which was highly lucrative at Lululemon. But, you know, as a, as you know, before we started doing that, and then I was a tenant, I was going like, I have a business that's rocking and I got employees and I got global things and thoughts that I have to do that, that if I had to think about my building or my lease, um, then that was just like sucking money out, out of, out of, uh, you know, what, what a much bigger possibility. So I always thought that, boy, if, if the landlord was there and taking care of me and, and I didn't have to think about the building like that landlord was helping me make a lot of money. And so, um, so I, we, we look at it from that point of view, like the landlord is, or the tenant is like, it's our job to make their lives easy and almost like if they don't even know we're there that's the best thing we can ever do for them yeah i guess the thing i'd add is i think an awful lot of landlords definitely institutional landlords and i think even small ones they view anything a tenant wants as an inconvenience or an annoyance oh oh it's he's got a leaky faucet oh yeah here i go again and you know yeah i gotta call a plumber but i'm really busy so i'll do it tomorrow or the next day the but getting back to the point is your tenant is your only customer. You keep your, your tenant happy. They're going to stay there for a long, long term. And when it comes time to re- renew the leases, generally you'll have a higher retention and you'll probably get more rent out of them. So it's a very simple business. Yeah, simple does. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very simple input and output business. I would say people try and mystify and, and make it very scientific, especially in our profession. I mean, we're both real estate professionals, and I think a lot of people want to try and make it sound very complicated so that they can monetize you know the 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 process between you and the asset right um which is kind of funny from my perspective but was there was there when you were saying you were you know purchasing space for head offices and owning and was there a degree of deliberateness of that or was it like did you ever say okay we have to allocate x amount to real estate to use it as a uh, you know to build assets to get into the company to start achieving 
certain valuations or what even on your on a personal scale where you allocate allocating or thinking about specific amounts of your net worth that you needed to put into property like and and even now obviously you know knowing from the from your first acquisition when you had some, some cash coming back from Alaska okay I put this much money into it did you and then obviously between that point and, and today made a significantly greater amount of money did you kind of try and allocate specific um, quantities of that like percentage wise and is or is there any template that you would advise individuals like it from you know either like a family office perspective or a individual perspective that people should be doing like to into yeah, well, there's a whole bunch of stories in here. Um, if I just looked at myself and our family, uh, and you know, people always look at best practices, so they go with with wealthy families in the family office, there's usually about 10 to 14% in real estate. Um, but I think it's because it's done on the side, it's almost done a little bit of mistake. Maybe they don't love real estate like I do. I also think that Going back to what Dave said, I mean, the premise of us getting into business together is I was doing so much business in Tokyo and and Hong Kong and Singapore, and I was coming back to Vancouver, and I was going, oh my God, like, this is the most beautiful place in the world. It's so much like Hong Kong. We're a Commonwealth country that the Asians are coming, and this is going to be the biggest growth place in the world. So it's a little bit, what I'm getting at is there's a risk, you know, uh, but there's a risk in investing in real estate and how much you want to do it. But it's also, again, recognizing a market that's going to occur. And that's 10, 20, 30. And even if I look at the amount of, like Dave was talking about, the immigration into Vancouver and into Canada, we know it's going ballistic. And again, this is the most beautiful place in the world. And I've lived in Sydney and et cetera. And I, I know that this is... And you go, okay, so then what percentage do you want to put into it? Well, it might be different if you're living in Saskatoon or you're living in Vancouver. So here I see it's high growth, high, high, um, low risk. And, um, and our family had originally decided 10 years ago with Dave that we were going to put 65% of our wealth into real estate wow. in, in, uh, probably three cities. We're in two now. Um, but that, uh, that didn't work out very well for us on a very good thing because the rest of our investments have done so well that we've, as fast as Dave has been able to buy, the, you know, our other businesses have done so well that you know, we haven't been reached that percentage. So our goal was 65% by 2030, but we'll probably be lucky to get to 20, I bet. Wow. And that's buying as almost as fast as we can. Impressive. Okay, I got two questions. The first one is, how did that happen? How did you guys come together and start Low Tide and just the 60%, all that kind of stuff? I want to hear that story. And then the three cities, so Vancouver, Seattle, what's the third city, and why Seattle? And, and Ironically, we went to the Vancouver-Seattle hockey game last night. We, yeah, <laughs> yeah, crap. Yeah, we lost, by the way, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. <laughs> the first we were living in the first beer with two pulls up, but yeah, anyways, I'm supposed to be a Leaf fan, but born and raised here, so next jersey was the first one I ever had, but anyways. So yeah, please, we digress. I mean, we digress, <laughs> which actually we haven't done a lot, which I'm super <laughs> proud of us for doing. Because we always do, but uh, yeah, how did how did you two come together? How what was the real estate thesis when you did? Why I mean, obviously we know why Vancouver. There's obviously a serious love for Vancouver. It's home, um, but why Seattle and where's the third mystery city? 
Well, or is that we met? We met. We met, we met in Calgary. I think we were maybe twenty-eight years yeah. old or something. We met thirty-eight years ago. Yeah. Wow, nice. And we just, I think, you know, we had a mutual friend, Caroline Burden, that that connected us at a party, and I and I think we got to know each other in Calgary a little bit. Dave wasn't a big talker. You know, he's a very quiet guy, and. I've no, of course, I've known him now. Uh, he's very measured in what he says, where I'm very unmeasured in what I say. So we were kind of a perfect combination. <laughs> anyway, that's why I'm doing all the talking right now. But um, and then I, I think it was just serendipity. We both ended up moving to Toronto at the same time. So he worked in real estate, and I had. Where did you guys live in Toronto? Well, you lived in the beaches. beaches. I lived in Queen West. Nice. Started up a skate surf store in the beaches, and which being beach volleyball. But um, and then and then I think we just we were kind of like I didn't know anybody. I don't know who he knew, but anyway, we hung out together. And anyway, we ended up back in Vancouver, and it just kind of kept the friendship together. And then I think there was a time and place where I wanted to to kind of go into real estate and start you know doing that. And I think. Dave wanted to be more entrepreneurial and probably more in control, and he had his own ideas how to run a real estate business, and I recognized that he was probably the smartest guy in the world, and I'm maybe not as smart as Dave, but I had lots of money, so it was a perfect combination. No, I think you, uh, that's accurate, we met, uh, actually, I'll correct it. We met in Calgary. I was living in Toronto. Chip moved to Toronto about oh, six months that? later, oh, okay. and then and then uh, and then he lived there. I think for about two years. He moved back. I stayed there for a lot longer. He was a lot more intelligent than me, uh, <laughs> and then I eventually moved back. So, and I guess I'm a career real estate guy. That's all I've ever done. That's all I've ever wanted to do. I love it. Um, so, yeah. And the story of Lou Lemon was really a matter of. Uh I, I I bought a house and I borrowed on the house and uh, and then I the and then I ran out of money. I borrowed on the money on the on the increased equity. Well, I ran out of money and, and I thought I was going bankrupt. And I borrowed on it again. So I mean the rate of you know um, the 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 rate that that um, prices were going up in Vancouver when I was starting Lululemon in the early two thousands was phenomenal. And so I had you know. I, it was kind of proving this thesis I had about the demand that was occurring in Vancouver and the migration that was happening from Asia. Awesome. So, Seattle. Why Seattle? Well, we, let's say up until 2017, everything we owned was in the in Vancouver and it was primarily office. And so we recognized, and uh, based on that and the fact that we wanted to grow our portfolio significantly, it would be prudent to diversify. So we chose to diversify in two ways. One is geographically to another city, and the other is to a different pr- uh, property type. So in Seattle, we're primarily multifamily rental. But the thing we like about Seattle is it's close to, to Vancouver. I'd say it's similar in a lot of ways in lifestyle. Uh, one fundamental difference is it has very large, growing private sector employers like Microsoft, like Amazon, like Starbucks, like Nordstrom's, like Costco. Costco yeah. like it's like uh, 26 global companies in Seattle. Wow. Um, and so, and while it doesn't have the same limitation on land mass that Vancouver does, it, it has limitations in two directions. One is like us, it has an ocean. The second thing is it has mountains to the east. You can move north and south, but there's 
Canadian so, border, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Canadian border. So there are restrictions as opposed to if we lived in, I don't know, let's say Saskatoon where it's prairie and you can expand as far as you want in any direction. So the I guess we have a fundamental belief that to the extent the real estate is the supply of real estate in particular area is limited and if it's a desirable place that would be a good place to invest so yeah there was a third diversification part of that and that it was a separate economy with a separate currency and so and, and i think a different type of government uh totally so um so these are all things that allow us it, it's what about a 45 minute float plane from harbor to harbor so it's really easy for us to be on top of it and you may ask where a third city would be, and you know, you know we contemplated a lot. I mean, I, I brought up like somewhere like in Portugal, you know, just because. Be nice. Well, but it would be nice, but then you kind of go, well, there's a reason the euro has been falling, and because that's a declining civilization there, oh, totally. Like yeah. the, it's uh, from not only the war has nothing to do with it. I think it's all. HR issues, government controls, taxes, birth, it birth makes rate, it impossible, birth yeah. rate, exactly. And so you kind of go, well, that'd be a nice place. I mean, it's a low, the Sorry. prices are low, but will it go up? No. Yeah. So, you know, you kind of look at, well, where else do we get into, you know, we love the West Coast, but it's very earthquake and volcano, you know, type of area, you know, we're almost right the way down. I don't like Latin America, you know, like it's, you know, so where do you pick? I mean, we love places where land is constrained and we really understand it. So we'll probably look for somewhere like that. Yeah, you, you made a very important point, and that is real estate is to do, if you're going to invest on a more active basis as opposed to passive, uh, you really have to understand the city and locations. So, for instance, in Vancouver, one of the reasons why we invest in these, let's call it emerging neighborhoods, is because we know the city unbelievably well. In the areas we invest, I know every single block. I've probably gone through half the buildings, maybe more. We made offers on lots. So we really, really understand. We understand what block we want to be in. We want to understand what side of the street we want to be in. You can't do that in a hundred different cities. You can't do that, um, and even in a foreign country where the culture is different and the way I don't know, maybe the city works is different. You can't do that, and so, um, so I guess that's why we're going to limit the number of places. When we went into Seattle, while we know it at sort of a high level, we've uh, uh, we've we've targeted very specific neighborhoods, but we've targeted the very best ones because we recognize we don't have the in-depth market knowledge. But if we pick the best properties in the best neighborhoods, then in the long run, we think we'll do reasonably well. And we know retail so well. I mean, Dave looks at it, but I live it and. We know that when a certain type of coffee shop opens up on a certain block, a half a block off the main area, that we know something's going to happen, and yeah. we, you know, and we're able to buy at that time. Yeah, it is interesting because retailers use very specific parameters for where they're going to put locations. Like it's something that we say on, on the podcast all the time. It's like go look in some of these smaller Canadian municipalities where a Starbucks is opening because they're closing in a number of other locations. It's yeah. like, it could be the easiest way for a beginner investor to just be like, that's where I'm going to buy. They did the market research for they, you. Yeah, they did. Like These are companies with huge uh, groups of teams of analysts and million dollar budgets to figure out where the best place to put it is. They did the homework. Just You just got to go follow it. That's fascinating because uh, you know, if you read my book, uh, The History of Lululemon, um, we didn't spend any money on real estate because we were we opened at the same time Starbucks did and we just followed. 
where are their first three locations? That's where we put the three new yeah, lemons. So there's well, there's no such yeah. thing as an original yeah. thought. So yeah, I'm yeah. probably yeah. writing on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, really interesting. Uh, you mentioned like the, having this granular knowledge of different areas and you know the specific things that you you know here about Vancouver that you maybe don't know in in Seattle. So if, could we maybe compare and contrast like if you were to have a list of five things that everybody should know about or you know if you could could about your local market like the five things that you you know about Vancouver that allow you to make decisions better than anybody else in real estate in this city. And then if you're going into because a lot of a lot of investors like I would say a good portion of our audience is people from Toronto, greater Toronto area who cannot afford real estate in Toronto and want to invest in another Canadian city or another city in North America even. And they're trying to figure out what that is. And if you could say, you know, answer these three questions or five questions, what would they be? Well, I guess the thing I'd say without answer, without getting into the uh, questions, the single most important thing is the location. Because you can change almost anything, everything about a property other than its location. So uh, that's first and foremost. I'd say uh, to the extent there's limitations on on growth or the amount of real estate that can be developed, that's generally a good thing. Um, one of the key things I personally look at is job growth because every time you add a job, then you need X housing units, like 0.6 of a housing unit. You need, I don't know, 20 square feet of a retail space. You need 10 square feet of industrial. So, and, without, and similarly, if you look at... Uh, uh, cities around North America where there's very little job growth or real estate markets are incredibly flat. So look at a place where jo- where the uh, economy is growing, the jobs are being added, and that generally will bode well for real estate. So, Yeah, I would, uh, and that's that's perfect, Dave. I mean, um, I've always been a real proponent of, of getting on the ground and asking people. And so if I was going to go like into Calgary, for instance, I'd probably find i do some research to find out, well, what are the top two restaurants? What are the two top coffee shops? What are the top six apparel shops? Like, or what are the cool shops that are in town? And maybe they've only got one store, but they, but everyone wants to go to them. And I would almost grab those 10 people, bring them to dinner, and then say, if you were to open up a second location, where would you go? And I think you're going to find like seven out of those 10 are going to say, I would move here for my second location, and then I would go invest in that area. Yeah, love that real boots on the ground mentality. Um, I guess we probably should start wrapping it up here. Um, I guess maybe final question from me, I don't want to take that away from, uh, speak for the both of us here. What are like, what can a regular investor, someone starting out, what, what would your advice be to, to them? Actually, and we kind of went over this in the beginning, but um, what would, what would a, how would you create a competitive advantage for someone in today's market with limited resources? So like your entry level investor, like, you know, somebody who, yeah, and you know, it's interesting because you mentioned the brand that you're building catering to, you know, that sort of like the 32 year old. So speaking to that person, because that's very much our audience and very much people who want to use real estate as a wealth building tool, like what would be the, op- the big opportunity for that person, do you think, in, in the real estate space right now? Well, I think it comes down to all businesses at the age of 30. There's very little that you know and, you're, and capital is limited and the amount that you'd be able to buy on your own may not be very much unless you're getting, you're the son of a, 
or daughter of a baby boomer who's then passing money down, which is totally viable too. But I'd say for your average struggling person, um, I think back to even, you know, when I started West Beach or something, I would have, I got two partners and I got into it and I learned the business. I was able to buy something maybe more substantial or do things that were more substantial. Um, learn from other people that were kind of in the same situation maybe one's good at finance the other one's good at keeping care of the property the other one's good at tenant relations you know like if there was three and then at some point you know have something where you can sell out and then you make a little bit of money you've learned a lot and then going to your next venture you've lowered the risk because there's knowledge and there's a little bit more cash and you know there's there's that I think Partnerships work sometimes and sometimes they don't, but um, that, that would be my suggestion. Yeah, yeah, I love that advice. It's something we talk a lot about on the show, the like time. building yeah. a team, right? Mm -hmm. And obviously you've done that, built an exceptionally good team in real estate. Like you said, the best, the, the smartest real estate mind in the world, I think, mm -hmm. we have here, which is... Yeah, uh, I don't know about I, that. I, I'm, I'm coming to agree with you, <laughs> no, honestly. Yeah. So, yeah. And I'd, I'd love to know your perspective as well. Like, is there an, uh, a market opportunity that you would identify for, for young people right now? Well, I'd say picking up on what Chip said, obviously the vast majority of young people have very little capital, so they have to deploy it in the, I'd say, the best way they can. And in order to build up, let's say, capital more quickly, it's probably looking at something, um, kind of, I'll say kind of a repositioning, either taking advantage, really understanding the market and, and seeing where something's mispriced. And occasionally that happens, and it happens more in real estate than, let's say, in the stock market. Because in the stock market, you open the, you go on the internet, you can see the price of, you know, every single stock, every single second, and there's millions of people that are actively looking. Either spending twelve or fourteen or eighteen hours a day monitoring the stock market. Real estate is quite different. It's very heterogeneous. Like every single piece of real estate is a little bit different. And so there are miss, occasionally things are mispriced. So understanding the market and what is good value, I'd say that's one thing. And then probably getting involved in something, and it's maybe it's a house, maybe it's a condo, where they can do a little bit of work and, fun, and fundamentally increase the value. And then probably realize on that, have a little more capital to invest and then do it do it over again to the point where they can they have enough capital they can invest at least part of it for a longer term investment where they can really create both cash flow and long-term wealth increase so, education partnerships and value add investing love it um Final closeout, anything that you want our listeners to know about the two of you or Low Tide or anything that we can't find online? <clears throat> well, I'd say Dave and I are, are deep, um, deep in the thought of what makes leadership and relationships work. I'd say we're very clear on, you know, we have the same definition of integrity we um, were able to, as I think Dave's favorite subject is that we're able to choose every morning to live a great life and that we choose to live in Vancouver and we choose to do what we do. We're under no pressure to do anything that we don't want to do. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, a leader is uh, someone who creates a future that would otherwise not have occurred. I think we both believe in that. And... Um, and that if we complain, we can complain for a couple times, but then we're in action to do something about it. So um, anything more, Dave, there? 
Well, I'd say just picking up on what you said, like it, it, my view is everything I do, I choose to do. And so uh, I'm very conscious about what I do. And my focus is to enjoy my life. Even if I live to be 100, it's a relatively short period of time. And so everything I do in every aspect. So let's say the, the idea of being friends with Chip, then being in partnership with Chip, uh, who we do business with, who our employees are, everything is it's it's a very conscious choice to maximize the enjoyment of our lives and so I, and I think when you're really enjoying your life and you're happy you will do a lot better than when you're miserable or or unhappy and <laughs> yeah and, and I think also to recognize what you're really good at and then play to your strengths yeah, there's a Japanese principle in that ikigai I don't know if you know that it's like the intersection of all of those things right mm -hmm. uh, uh, Passion, what you can make money doing, you know, what the world needs, how you can create value. It's sort of like a Venn diagram. And in the middle of that is this. Sounds like the hedgehog value. principle by yeah, very yeah. 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 Well, maybe that word is uh, Japanese for hedgehog. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Really okay. appreciate the yeah. time, gentlemen. Yeah. Pleasure. We'll call yeah. it there. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, great. What an extraordinary interview. Um, you know, it, it is really interesting to see two individuals bounce back and forth like that who have obviously very two distinct different skill sets to bring to the table, but just works and collaborate so well together. And it really, it, it really struck me when, you know, Chip said, when we asked for advice for young investors, he talked about building a team and they really, really enforced that. One of the things that David founded the the business on, the, one of these founding beliefs was that if you work with people that you want to be around, your life will be better for it. And it started out as a one man show. So it was, it was David and, and Chip. And low tide grew to a headcount of over 40 people. And we were in the office and it was, you know, it was everyone that we met was awesome. And you even hear it like, you know, we've been out and about in Vancouver and, you know, it's no secret that we're interviewing Chip Wilson. We mentioned it a couple of times to people and, you know, we would hear, oh, I used to be a tenant of theirs and extraordinary space. Great to deal with all of these things. Like it really shines through and it's hard to contextualize it because you're thinking, oh, this is an office landlord. This is a billionaire. But the same, they're very much the same principles that we talk about is relationship business, you know, customer service. And David really boils that down. He's like, you really only have one job. It's like deliver the space and make sure that you're serving that customer exceptionally well. So I took a ton of value from this. And if anything, it just reinforced that some of the stuff that we're talking about isn't wrong. And you get people <laughs> who are doing it a lot better and a lot bigger than we are. And just, and, and they kind of just really, really cement the advice that we talk about on the show. So I was grateful for that for sure. Yeah. Always nice when your fundamentals, your, you know, your, your fairly simple fundamentals are reinforced by a billionaire. It feels pretty good. I completely agree, Dan. I mean, just uh, the wealth, wealth of knowledge. Again, this is something I'll be going back and listening to uh, probably a few times just to make sure I get everything. Because even though I did it in person, it was almost like, you know, I blacked out and we came out of that. And I was like, hey, what happened? I know it went well, but I can't remember. Um you know, I, I do love the part about living a life by design. I think that's really misconstrued these days. And people think, okay, well, I get rich and then I can live a life by design. But they talk about living a life by design and, and you know, strategically from the very beginning and, and finding the people you want to work with and the things that you want to do and building that team. Um, another, a few of my other favorite things were, you know, the hundred year plan, right? I mean, real estate Trent, uh, strip mall guy that just posted, to make money in real estate, you have to have a 10-year horizon minimum. Well, Chip 10X'd that and, and put a 100-year timeline on it, which I love. So it, it's fascinating to see um, 
you know, planning for generations like that. And then probably one of my other favorite things, which was a really simple question, which was why Canada? And and Dan, you were the one who who left the interview and said, I've never been more bullish on Canadian real estate after hearing Chip Wilson talk about it because, you know, not only did they bring up great points, but it's it's wonderful to see people with, you know, I don't want to say unlimited resources, but a hell of a lot more resources than than most people have that are still so focused on Canada and the Canadian economy and providing Canadian housing. And, and yeah, and I think also somebody who has a lot of worldliness exactly. and gives you the ability to compare and contrast with other markets around the world and is really focused on, on Canada. Yeah. Really, really fascinating stuff. Anyways, guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We know it was a bit longer than usual, but well worth it. We could have talked to Chip for hours, but uh billionaire seems to be busy guys these days. So, uh, Hope you enjoyed it and got a ton of value out of it. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.